kind of frightening when you're standing right here. It's like an earthquake. Do you know that? Wow. Uh, be turning to Genesis, if you would. While you're turning there, let me mention tonight is a very important night. Uh, first Sunday of every month, we gather to pray. And tonight, we're going to be praying as we give Bibles to sixth graders who've been growing up in our ministry here and encourage them to uh, keep studying, keep digging, keep following and obeying the Lord. And then we've also got uh, six men being ordained to the deacon ministry, and we'll be praying over them as well. So I hope you as a church body will be here and gather as we gather around these children uh, to pray for them. I, I will assure you that will be a significant moment in their lives um, to have the church body gathered around and praying for them. And then as we pray for these men as they begin their service with us. Before we jump into Genesis, I want to read um, from Romans chapter 1 because I think it so parallels what we're seeing in Genesis. Romans 1, Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking became futile, and their hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. You know, Paul is, is describing a pattern here in, in Romans that has been repeated continually ever since the rebellion in the garden. The, the people of Noah's time were without excuse just as people are today. And Paul says what they have done is they have suppressed the plain truth. God has made himself known. No one has any excuse. But those who are wicked suppress the truth and they don't honor God and they come up with their, their own truth that is futile and because of that their hearts have been hardened. Today we're going to wrap up our study of the, the origin of man, the record of the beginning of civilization in Genesis. We will come back to Genesis sometime in the future. There's so much more here, starting with the, the call of Abraham and uh, Abraham in chapter 12, all the way through the life of Joseph, uh, ending at the end of Genesis in chapter 50. So we'll come back to that. Well, let's click, quickly review where we have been so far in this study. We looked at the account of creation in, in chapters 1 and 2 and, and understood God's design in making man in his image and making him male and female, giving him dominion over the earth and in instituting marriage between a man and a woman. Chapter 3, we witnessed the rebellion that occurred in the garden, the, the brokenness of fellowship with God, the seeds of mistrust sown between that man and, and woman and the curse on the man and the woman and the, and the serpent. And along with the curse, the promise of redemption that would come. But then we also sadly saw the consequence of sin, expulsion from the garden, from the presence of God, and ultimately that sin brings death, not just physical death, but spiritual death and eternal separation from God. Chapter 4 showed the increase of sin. We saw the, the murder of Abel by Cain, and then we saw in the lineage of Cain that each generation uh, increased more and more with evil. Chapter 5 was a bright spot. Chapter 5, we saw the line of, of Seth, the son that was born uh, after Abel's murder. And through his godly line, we know that the Messiah would come. And you remember, too, from the line of Seth, we were drawn to one particular righteous man named Noah. 
And you know, you see all through Scripture, as you, as you study Scriptures, you read the accounts that God has put there of his dealings with men, you see the contrast of the godly and the ungodly, the contrast of the, the righteous and the wicked. You see the blessings that follow righteousness, and you see the curse and the judgment that follows wickedness. Chapter 6 and 7 were all about the flood, the, the preparation by Noah's family the preaching, the proclamation of the, of the gospel in the days leading up to the flood, and then the protection that Noah and his family and all the animals had as they were in that ark that was sealed by the hand of God. You know, chapter 6 and 7 is a, is a good pattern for God's people today as we consider the final judgment coming. We need to be prepared. Our preparation is in making sure that we're living the kind of life that we won't shrink back from the Lord. We won't be ashamed at his coming. Just like Noah, we need to be preaching or proclaiming the gospel, warning those who don't know that judgment is coming. And we also need to remember that we are protected. If we are in Christ, we are protected from the judgment that is to come for those who are not in Christ. What does that mean? Well, that means we shouldn't shrink back in fear. We need to get off the sidelines and, and get into the battle because lives and souls are at stake. Chapter 8, we saw that the waters receded, the ark came to rest, and at just the right time, God instructed Noah to come out of that ark. And Noah came out, and, and the sons and the daughters-in-law and his wife, they came out to a world that was completely different. The landscape had changed, and the, the uh, devastation of judgment was very visible when they came out. You remember when they came out, the first thing Noah did was to build an altar and offer a sacrifice to the Lord. You see, even though they were righteous people, they were still sinners in need of forgiveness, as you and I will be for all the days of our life. And then last week in chapter 9, we saw that God blessed Noah and his sons and their wives. He repeated the instruction to them that they were to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. Man still was to have dominion, just as God had told Adam and Eve, and now the animals were given to them for food. They were no longer just uh, vegetarians. They were now meat eaters. Chapter 9, we saw that God set a rainbow in the sky as a promise that he would never destroy the earth by flood again. And it's a good thing, or we wouldn't be reading what we're about to read in chapter 11. The people in chapter 11 that we get to today were just as wicked. God could have just wiped them out again, but he had promised that that would not happen. And you remember in the latter part of chapter 9, it told us the earth was repopulated by the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so as we look back, if you want to trace your genealogy, we all started with Adam, we all came through Noah, and then we all came through either Shem or, or Ham or Japheth. Every nation and every people group came from one line. Now, we use the word race in our day to talk about people groups with different languages and different characteristics, but according to Scripture, we're all one race and one family. Now, let me, let me pause here. This is not in the text, but let me just pause here and, and mention this in thinking about that we're all one race and one family. I want you to look around the room today at the other people in the room today. Just take a look around. Look around. Look around. When we are gathered in heaven as the bride of Christ, that gathering will not look like this gathering. The church should not look different from heaven. This church, our church, should look different than it does today. It should reflect the community around us. It should be more inclusive. 
And I know the vast majority of us understand that, but, but just to be real honest and real blunt this morning, and I'm sorry if you're a visitor, I'm getting into a little bit of family talk right here, but just to be real blunt this morning, there are a few in our body that struggle with people of different ethnicities. In fact, just to be brutally honest, we have actually lost some people of color from this congregation because of experiences they've had right here in this place. Just a month ago, someone of a different ethnic group visited. At the end of his time here, he asked this question, where are the people like me? Now, I'm not going to belabor the point this morning, but I want you to know I'm very serious. I have initiated some conversations with our leadership, and we're going to address the lack of diversity in our church. It is going to be a, a very long, slow process, but we're committed to, to seek God on how to bring change that will make our church look more like our community and make our church look more like heaven. You need to know that. If that's going to be a struggle for you, you've got some time to pray for the Lord to change your heart. If we're going to be a, a biblical church, we have to be more inclusive. Scripture is very clear. There's no distinction for those who are in Christ. Paul in Galatians said, in Christ, we're all children of Abraham. We're all children of faith. We're, we're one in Christ. Everyone who belongs to Christ is an heir of the promise. And so our, our faith and our unity in the body and our inheritance are not based on our skin color. All right, let's spend a few minutes in chapter 10, and then we will look. Y'all can take a breath now. I feel like all the air went out of the room. <laughs> chapter 10, and then we'll look at our primary text today in chapter 11, 1 through 9. Chapter 10, as you see, is a, is a genealogy. It's a detailed account of the descendants of Shem and Ham and, and Japheth as they spread out all over the world and form many different nations. Now, chapter 10 is very accurate as a genealogical record, but after chapter 10, it's only the line of Shem that we continue to, to, to be able to trace with precision. And the reason for that is the line of Shem is traced from chapter 10 on, it is traced all the way through Scripture because from the line of Shem, the offspring of the woman is going to bring the promised Messiah. And so we have a, a very direct, very precise lineage from the very beginning from Adam all the way through to Jesus. Now, as you look at chapter 10 and 11, we have to look at them a little bit <clears throat> like we did in, in chapter 1 and 2. You remember that Genesis 1 gave a chronological overview of creation week, and then Genesis 2 focus on specific detail, such as the creation of man and woman. And so we have the same kind of thing at play here in Genesis 10, 11. Genesis 10, you're reading the accounts of Noah's son moving away from each other and forming groups and languages. But then chapter 11, preceded chapter 10, chapter 11 tells us why that happened. It gives us the event that caused the dispersion uh, of the peoples. Now, we're not going to read the entire list of names here in chapter 10, but I would say if you're expecting a, a little boy or you know someone who's expecting a little boy, you might want to read through the list of some really interesting biblical names that you could give that little boy. I mean, what young man wouldn't be excited to grow up under a name like Ashkenaz or Rephat or Togarmah? That'd be pretty cool, right? The first list in verses 2 through 4, the sons of Japheth, and then I want you to read with me in verse 5. 
from these coastland peoples, chapter 10, verse 5, from these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and in their nations. So we understand that after the dispersion, each group had their own language, and we'll see the reason for that in chapter 11. Then verses 6 through 14, you see the lineage of Ham, and we want to look at one specific descendant in verses 8 through 12 of chapter 10. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first person on earth to be a mighty man. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, Kalan, and Resin between Nineveh and Kalan. That is the great city. So Nimrod became a mighty hunter of wild animals. He established a kingdom of several cities. You see, it started with those first four cities there. It's likely that because Nimrod was a mighty hunter, he was probably a very powerful man, and it was easy for him to, um, shall we say, persuade people to, to follow him. Now, here's why I point out Nimrod. A lot of people believe that Nimrod led the rebellion at Babel in chapter 11. In fact, I even remember as a child... Um, reading Bible stories about Nimrod leading the rebellion to, to uh, build the city and build the tower. That's probably mistaken. And the reason I take time to point this out is, is not because it affects any essential doctrine that we have, but I want to just illustrate the importance uh, of reading Scripture carefully. And, and I'll admit there have been times that I haven't done that and I've had to go back and, and correct my thinking. Now, it's not life-changing in this text, but you can understand there's some texts, that if we don't read them properly, could get us in a lot of trouble uh, doctrinally and spiritually. So we want to be sure that we're reading uh, Scripture carefully. So here's what a good reading tells us, just in these two chapters about Nimrod. In chapter 11, we're not going to see any mention or, or any hint even that Nimrod was, was leading the charge. The passage makes it clear this was a collective rebellion. It, it, was, it was grassroots, if you will. It was in the heart of all the people to rebel. Now, even though Babel is mentioned here in, in uh, verse 10 as part of his kingdom, you see there were four cities that were the beginning of his kingdom there in verse 10 of chapter 10. So evidently, Nimrod took over uh, Babel after the dispersion. Nimrod, willingly or not, was obeying God by scattering to fill the earth. Now, in verse 11, you'll notice that Nimrod built Nineveh. You've probably heard of that city. It's probably one of the more famous uh, Old Testament cities, and you recognize it because it was one of the most wicked cities in the Old Testament. And you remember the story that God sent Jonah who did not go willingly, God sent Jonah to pronounce his destruction on the people of Nineveh. But the people repented. God didn't destroy them. And it's important for us to remember that those who repent are shown mercy. God had planned to destroy Nineveh. He sent Jonah to declare the judgment, but they repented and God showed them mercy. Now, the balance of chapter 10 includes the sons of Canaan. You remember we talked about Canaan last week and the sons of Shem. Look down in verse 32. In verse 32, we read, These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies. 
in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So two quick observations before we move on from chapter 10. One is, if you, if you go through and count and summarize the list in chapter 10, there were about 70 groups, and it's likely that each group had its own language. And from these, these 70 language groups, we have the foundation for hundreds of, of languages and dialects that we have today. Now, chapter 10 is not something you would probably read in your morning devotional time. It, it looks like a, a boring genealogy, but chapter 10 is the foundation for the table of, of nations and the groups founded after the flood. And, and this is in here to give us a clear picture of how the world went from eight people post-flood to the diverse population and, and the number of people that we see on the earth today. And let me tell you, God loves diversity. God loves all people of all nations, and he wants every one of them to know him and be able to, to glorify him. And, it, you know, if you think about it, it's kind of exciting. You see the scattering that occurred here. It's exciting to look in the future and think about the fact that all these people that God had to scatter, the, the day is coming when he will gather all people from all nations, all those who, who follow his son, and he'll bring them together in his kingdom. That's what it's going to be like in heaven. It's not going to look like this. Listen to the words of, of Revelation chapter 7 that John wrote. He said, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we're going to be in that crowd. It's going to be quite diverse. There are going to be peoples that, that we have never met before and people groups that we never knew about. But God is going to gather all of us together as we worship him and worship the lamb who sits on the throne. All right, chapter 11. And I've titled the message today from chapter 11, The Rebellion Continues. You know, we, we look at people not only here in Genesis but all through the Old Testament and, and we think, or we even say out loud to ourselves, what is wrong with these people? Look at all the, the good that God has done, and they keep on disobeying, and they, they keep on rebelling, and they keep on turning from God. What's wrong with these people? We're no different, though, are we? We experience the blessings of God and the goodness of God, and we still rebel, and we still turn away. We're no different than these people, and so there are lessons here for us. All right, chapter 11, let's look at the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, 
because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now here's an incredible picture of rebellion. This isn't like your child quietly disobeying behind your back, hoping you won't notice. This, This is blatant. It's like your child hearing you say, don't, and looking you right in the eye as they do. It's just, you've had that, right? It's just a blatant rebellion. And just be sure we're all on the same page about what the rebellion was about. God had made clear they were to fill the earth. They were to scatter and populate all of the world that God had made, not just stay in this one little corner. And so the descendants of Shem and Ham and Japheth, they decide that they know best, so they're going to stay put. They're not going to obey the command of God. They're going to stay together. And verse 4 tells us they decide to build a city and a tower that will reach the heavens. Listen to what it says. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They knew knew exactly what God had commanded. They do everything in their power to keep that from happening. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with building a city or or building a a tower. In fact, that could be a, a great thing in bringing people together for a common cause. But what was so wrong with the Tower of Babel? Why is, it a, why is the Tower of Babel, why is building that tower a symbol of rebellion? Why did God put this account in Scripture? Well, the first thing wrong with the Tower of Babel is that there shouldn't have been a city of Babel. All the people that, that were alive now following the flood shouldn't have been gathered in one place. You see, they were doing what was convenient and easy not what God commanded. Let me say that again. They were doing what was convenient and easy, not what God commanded. You see, I think it's an individual people, and then, of course, corporately as a body, we, we have a tendency to do what's convenient, not what's commanded. We have a tendency to do what we can do and, and stay within our comfort zone and not get out there on the edge and not walk by faith. We, we don't want to do what, what God commanded. It's not typically convenient and easy. They thought they were wiser than God. So they decided it'd be better to, to stay together rather than scatter abroad. I wonder how often we ignore God's instructions in, in favor of our own wisdom. I think a lot of times I've done that. I'll tell you, it doesn't ever turn out well. We're guilty of the ancient sin of Babel when we dismiss the command of God and follow our own wisdom. I guess that's why Solomon pins some words that we love to quote, but we forget to follow. And you know the passage, it's in Proverbs 3. Why don't you say it with me? Trust the Lord. With all your heart, do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. That's not a suggestion. It's more than good advice. The second problem with the tower you also see in verse 4, where they stated their purpose in building it. They said, let us make a name for ourselves. You see, when you think you're wiser than God, then you begin to believe you're more important than God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism states, reminds us that man exists 
to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, they, their, their chief goal was not to glorify God. Their chief goal was to promote themselves, to promote their own renown, to, to make a name for themselves. Hey, let, let's not do that. Let's do this so that we can make a name for ourselves. You know, that brings up a really good, good question for us as we walk the journey, as we make decisions in this life. And what we need to think about is asking ourselves a question, am I doing what I'm doing to make a name for myself? To be noticed by men? Or am I doing what I'm doing and living the way I'm living in order to glorify God? So verse 5 says that God sees what they're doing. Of course he does. He sees they're one people. They have one language. And in verse 6 he says, this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they propose will be impossible for them. Now, let me clarify. God is not saying if I leave them alone, a man can accomplish anything. Listen, man's not going to build a tower all the way to heaven. Not going to happen. Not in their day, certainly not in our day either. That's not what God's saying. God's saying if this rebellion goes unchecked, there will be no uh, end to the evil of which mankind is capable. There will be no sin he wouldn't attempt. You don't have to look far in our culture today to recognize that man is capable of limitless evil. Daily you can read or hear stories of things that are done that are so evil that it just confounds your thinking and blows your mind that anyone could do anything that evil. And here you have all these evil men in one place. You can imagine what that would turn into. And the reality for all of us is that if you and I didn't have the restraint of government, if we didn't have the accountability of, of family and friends, and if we didn't have the intervention of, of other believers who see us getting off course, there's no limit to the evil that we would do. You see, you and I are, are not morally superior to terrorists. We're not morally superior to, to criminals who commit heinous crimes. Fortunately for us, we have God's restraining grace to keep us in check. And it's only his restraining grace. You know, that's why, that's why we look at people in rebellion and say, there, but for the grace of God, go I. And that's exactly right. So God scrambles their language. He, he foils their plans. Imagine the workers showing up the next day to to work on that tower and, and the bricklayer is speaking Chinese and the foreman is speaking French and the architect is speaking Spanish. Their language has been totally uh, confounded. They wanted to make a name for themselves and now they can't even pronounce each other's names. God's opposed to the proud. When, when we leave God out of our plans, when we don't consult him and consult his word and, and consult him through prayer, we should not be surprised when our plans fail. James 4, 6, James said, God opposes the proud, but he gives favor or he gives grace to the humble. You know, if you've experienced failure in your life, 
because you've ignored the plans of God, one good thing about failure is failure can, can refocus your heart and give you, bring you to the opportunity to repent. Well, the balance of chapter 11, you see the descendants of Shem there, the, the children of Abraham, the Jewish race. And think about this, in, in the midst of the rebellion here at Babel, Again, God should have just, if it was me or you, wiped out the entire human race again. But in the midst of the rebellion, God is setting aside a people through whom Messiah would come, bringing salvation to everyone who believes. What does it mean to believe? It means to come to the point of recognizing that just like these people, we are sinners. We're wicked, and our sin has separated us from God, and the payment God determined for our sin was death, but because we couldn't pay our own price, only a perfect sacrifice could pay the price for sin because we couldn't pay the price, God sent Jesus. Jesus came from heaven to earth and lived in a limited human body. He didn't regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did that for you and for me. We're still sinful people, but we can, we can come to the place of receiving Jesus and living in the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see the wickedness, he doesn't see the evil, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And because of what he has done for us when we were in rebellion. God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, while we were in rebellion, Christ died for us. Because he did that, when we come to him as Savior, we also make the commitment to live for him as Lord. Because he died for us, we live for him. In the midst of this rebellion, God made a way. Thank God that his mercy is greater than our sin. Don't look at these people. Don't, don't read these accounts and think, man, those are terrible people. Read these accounts and see yourself and recognize we are terrible people, but God in his mercy and the richness of his grace provided a way for us. Well, how do we apply the truth this morning? There's some things that we've said before in this study that we need to say again, and that is, are we prepared for Jesus' return? There's another judgment coming. It won't be a flood, but there's another judgment coming, and are we prepared? Have we prepared ourselves? We said that Noah and his family prepared, and then they preached. They proclaimed the gospel. Are we proclaiming the gospel to those who don't know, listen, we got to get in the game. We can't sit on the sidelines. There are lives and souls that are at stake. And, and part of that proclamation of the gospel is understanding that God loves all people and he expects us to love all people and relate to all people and connect to all people and build relationships so that we can share the gospel with them. What about the lessons from the Tower of, of, of Babel? Are you trying to do life on your own according to, to your own wisdom? 
Are you more concerned about making a name for yourself, doing things your way, or living in such a way that it brings glory and honor to the Father? Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever.